So it is a universal spiritual truth that trying to reenact a scene from Dumb and Dumber, the early movie starring Jim Carrey, came out a number of years ago, is a dumb idea. Um, but nevertheless, I did that anyway when I was in high school. Tried, there's this famous scene where Jim Carrey's a limo driver, and he's driving somebody along, and he spends the entire time totally turned around, not looking at the road. He's looking at the person behind him. And he's just going on and on, and you can see the person's freaking out, and you can see the cars kind of going back and forth, and the oncoming traffic swerving out of the way, and people are honking, and he just says, you know, there's a lot of bad drivers out there. You've got to be really careful all the while driving like that. So I decided in high school, you know, it'd be really funny if I just did that. And so while driving on Interstate 30 out in Nebraska, doing about 60 miles an hour with my, two of my siblings and a friend, decide, you know, a little two-lane highway, decide to turn around and do that. Say, hey, guys, there's a lot of bad drivers out there. As that happens, another car comes 60 miles an hour, and I swerve off the road and almost um, die doing probably one of the dumbest things I ever could have done. Now, it's foolish, right? Because what happens when you take your eyes off the road? You start to drift. And so the question for us this morning, that's the, the title of our text, is where are your eyes? Where are your eyes? Where are your eyes focused on? Because where your eyes are, where you're looking, that kind of determines where your life is going to go, just like it determines where your car is going to go. And so where our eyes are, if they're somewhere where they're not supposed to be, can get us in trouble, like it almost did for me that one day on I-30. But if our eyes are in the right place, it can lead us somewhere different. And so that's where we're going to look at this morning. We're going to continue in the book of Joshua. We're actually we're going to do a big chunk. We're going to do chapters 3 and 4 this morning. Um, so it's a little bit section, a longer section today, and we're just going to look at where does God want our eyes to be. Now, I'm not going to have you stand this morning just because we are going to, as we normally do, because I'm reading such a large section, um, so it's okay to remain seated. But I am just going to go ahead and still read it all at once, um, even though it's longer. And I do that every week, as you notice. We just read through the whole section that I'm preaching um, because I just, I'm just convicted that that's what I think I should do, and I think it's valuable to read God's Word that way. I think if that's all we did and then prayed and sang again and went home, that God's Word is still declared, because all I'm going to do after it is just try to unpack it and explain it. Um, but so this morning, just turn in your Bibles, and I'm going to go ahead and read from God's Word, chapter 3 and 4 out of the book of Joshua. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, or no, wait, yeah, and set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp. And commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the, Le the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And then jo the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters on the Jordan and stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to, my wor to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out 
from before you, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant is passing, of the Ark of the Lord of all the earth is passing over you before into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from each of the tribes of Israel, from each tribe of man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bear in the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So then when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests were bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zethan. And those flowing down from the sea of Arabah, the salt sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel were passing on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. And when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, the twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan and from the very place where the priests stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. And Joshua called the twelve men who had appointed from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on from before the ark of the Lord your God in the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulders according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel so that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in times to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. And the people passing passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over the Ark of the Covenant, and the priests passed over before the people. And the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the people said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you should tell your children, No, 
Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's Word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Your miracles. I thank You that You didn't stop working miracles with Moses. I thank You that You didn't stop at Joshua. Lord, would You continue to move mightily today and even this morning. Lord, would You open up our hearts? Would You give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would we hear from You and Your Word? And will we not leave this place without being changed by an encounter with You? We pray this in Your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so point number one, if you're keeping notes, is that we need to keep our eyes on God. It's to keep your eyes on God. Did you notice as we read through this how many times ark was mentioned? Right? How many times it mentioned the ark of the covenant, the ark of the Lord, or even it just referred to it as it? Now, if you count them all up, as I did, and you can double check and see if my math is right, I counted 19 times that the ark of the covenant is mentioned in just these two short chapters. That's a lot of times. Okay, so anytime something's repeated, usually if it's repeated twice in a chapter, it's probably important. If it's repeated 19 times, it's definitely significant. It's definitely important. And what I think is happening here is that God does not want us to get our eyes off of the ark. Even as we read it, even as we just hear the story, we can't help but keep our focus on the Ark of the Covenant, on the Ark of the Lord, because it's just coming up over and over and over again. And that's what Israel was commanded to do, to keep their eyes on the Ark, which really is to keep their eyes on God. So quickly, we can talk about what is the Ark of the Covenant. The building of the Ark, it's described back in Exodus 25 where God gives Moses clear and kind of explicit instructions where here's how you build this. Here's how you're going to put this together. And it's basically just a rectangular box made out of wood that's covered with gold. And then it has some rings on the side where they can carry it with them. And so that's what the priests are doing with their poles. And on top of it, there are two angels called cherubim. Right, and their wings are facing each other and they're looking down kind of at the center, which is normally called the mercy seat. And inside the ark, there's a number of things. Inside the ark, there's the tablets describing the covenant that God has made with His people. There's a jar containing some manna. And there's also uh, Aaron's staff, the brother of Moses, right? So it's in there, and there's still some buds from a miracle that God worked. And so God would appear to Moses. When He would talk to Moses, He would appear at the ark in between the cherubim. It describes this in, in Exodus and how, that's how God would speak to Moses face to face there. And the ark would normally be hidden, right, in the tabernacle at that point, which was kind of their traveling temple because it wasn't built yet. And so the, the ark is really, all of that to say that it is symbolic of the presence of God. So when they saw the ark, what they were really seeing is they are seeing God. Not that God was contained in the box, okay, you can't put God in a box, that's not what they were doing, but that it's really symbolic of who God is. And so the way that they, and God at this point in time in history manifested His presence in a unique and special way in the ark, like He did when He spoke to Moses. And so the way that they treat the ark shows and reveals what they, how they really treat and what they think of God. 
And the people are called in verse 4 of chapter 3 to keep their distance, right? So there should be a distance between you and the ark, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it. And there's a couple of reasons why this warning would be given here. So one of the reasons that they're not supposed to get too close is because God is holy. Because to get way too close to the ark, like later in 2 Samuel, a priest, Uzzah, he goes and the ark's falling and he touches it when he's not supposed to and God strikes him dead. Why? Because you, you don't get too close to God. He is too holy for us. And so that's part of what's going on, but also part of what's going on here and why they need to keep so far of a distance and 2,000 cubits. I had to look it up. I don't know how far that is right off the top of my head. What is a cubit? I don't know. But this distance, it's about, give or take, three football fields away. Okay, so that's a really, that's a far, that's far away. And now why is it that far? I think if you look at four, it's in order that you may know. Okay, you need to know the way you should go because you haven't passed this way before. And what I think God is saying here is everyone needs to be able to see the ark. Everyone needs to see the path. That There needs to be a good distance, so no matter how far we are as we're going down into this valley to cross the river, that everyone can keep their eyes on the ark. Everyone can keep their eyes on God. It's really just this massive parade and processional with the ark front and center. In verse 11, it gives us this explicit command, right? That's kind of key here. Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth that's passing over before you. They need to hold the ark in their sight. They need to not take their eyes off of it. They need to look at it. Now, behold, behold is a really Old Testament word, isn't it? I don't know how many of you use behold in your everyday language, okay, unless you're trying to feel very Old Testament, say, behold, dinner is served, right? Okay, we, we don't do that, right? So I had an Old Testament prof who, as we translate through the Old Testament, she'd always make us translate this. She'd never let us translate it, behold. She'd make us do it, okay, look, look, and put an exclamation point on it. And that's really what he's saying. It's look, look, keep your eyes over here. Behold the ark. Stare at it. Look at it. Don't let it out of your sight. And why do they need to keep their eyes on the ark? Well, because God is the one who's doing the work. God is the one who does this miracle. Joshua doesn't do this miracle. The people don't do this miracle. God does it just himself. All they need to do is keep their eyes on God and watch what he's going to do when he shows up. Verse 10, this is how you will know the living God is among you. This is how they are going to know and be encouraged again at how, who the God is that they serve because He is going to do it. All they have to do is just keep their eyes on God and then see what He will do. And why do we need to keep our eyes on God or keep our eyes on Jesus as well? Because where you look determines where you go, right? If you're driving down the road and you decide to be dumb like I was and turn behind you, you're going to start swerving. Okay, if you're going down 81 and you start to look and trying to decide, well, what's the line over at Brahms? Am I going to swing in there or not? Or what's the line over here? Maybe is Walmart too busy? Maybe not. Maybe we'll go over here. If you start doing too much of that, you're going to get off track, right? Or if you're, you're mowing your lawn, I, I mow my lawn this week. I, I really don't like to mow, um, but I'm cheap, and so I'll do it myself, right? That, that's really it. I'm just, I'm cheap, and so even though I don't like it, I'll do it because I don't like paying somebody else to do it less than I like actually doing it. But here's what's happening. Okay, when I'm mowing, if I start letting my eyes wander and start getting distracted and see oh, what's going on at elk or what's that squirrel doing, okay, my lines are going to look really bad. And when you come by my house, you're going to be able to see, what was he doing there? That section is really kind of goofy, right? Because where you're looking and where your eyes are, it determines where you go. 
And so we as believers, we have to keep our eyes on God. Because if we take them off of God, we start going to other places. But if we keep Him front and center, if we keep our attention on Him, then He can guide and lead us where we should go. Now, I did marching band um, for a long time. I, I love music. Um, so I did it kind of through high school, and I did it some in college. And I really enjoyed it for the most part. College was kind of hit or miss. It was a lot more work in college than it was in high school. But one of the things I love about marching band is you get to do these complicated drills, right? So that's what we did. You, you go to the football game, and then the marching band would go out there, and you'd move around in formation, okay? And you start doing different symbols where you could get really crazy. Some of these bands, you see them do like airplanes or guys kicking footballs. Okay, we didn't quite do that. We did some nice squares and <laughs> change it to a diamond, you know, that kind of move. But you can still do some cool things, right? And I love doing it because it's so hard and complicated. Because what you have to do to accomplish that, you have to memorize 50 different spots on a field for just you. So I have to go out there, okay, spot number one is that one there. And then spot number two is there. And I got to get it in order. And not only that, I got to have the music memorized. And then I got to know, okay, it's 18 steps to that one. And it's got to be at this time period while I'm doing this. And everyone else is going on around me. So when it. When everyone's doing it right, it looks really good. It looks really cool, right? But what happens too, when you're doing that, you have to do all of those things, and the entire time, you need to keep your eyes on the drum major, okay? And the drum major is the person standing up there waving their hands around. If you ever wonder what they're doing, okay, they're, they're conducting. They're trying to keep the whole band together so that everyone steps. They're taking the same pace with their steps, taking the same distance with your steps. And so while you're doing all of this stuff, you have to keep your eye on the drum major because they're trying to keep everyone on the same page. And so in the midst of all the chaos going on around you, as you're going and you're marching and you're trying to get here, and what are they doing? you got to keep your eyes on them because there's plenty of distractions like trains. Right? But what happens if you start to take your eyes off of the drum major because you go, wait, I can't remember exactly where's my spot or, hey, what are they doing over there? Why, Jimmy, why, why is Jimmy doing that? Doesn't he know he's supposed to keep in step? He's on the wrong. You start to do that, now you're going to get off. So you have to keep your eye on the drum major the entire time. That's why you have to keep it on the person who's leading the show. And as believers, we need to keep our eyes on the person who's leading the show, who's conducting us, who's telling us how our life should live, who's trying to lead and guide us. We have to keep our eyes on God. And we can't get distracted by everything else that's going on around us. And there's plenty of distractions, aren't there, in our lives? Israel had plenty of distractions there. Even for them, if you look right in, in 15, it's got this section in parentheses. At least it has parentheses in, in the ESV version I'm looking at. But it really kind of interrupts the flow. Right at 15, it's talking about the ark is going and the priests are about to dip their feet in the water. And then it pauses. It's really kind of an abrupt thing. It's almost like a commercial break. And says, now the Jordan was overflowing in all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Okay, so part of what it's doing there is trying to build tension. It's trying to, for you to say, ah, oh, what's going to happen? But it's letting you know, this is at the highest point that the Jordan is ever at. Okay, this is flood season. The river doesn't get any higher than it is right now when God is going to work this miracle. So one, this is also letting you know, okay, this wasn't just a natural thing. The Jordan just wasn't really low. And God decides it was a good time to cross, and so they just walked across now, but God didn't show up in any miraculous way. No, God showed up in a beyond miraculous way. He waited till the river was at its highest point to lead them across. Well, that'd be quite a distraction, wouldn't it, for Israel? As they're getting, okay, here we go. Well, I see the ark. Uh, that river's pretty high, God. What are we doing? 
Like, I don't, I don't see a boat. I don't see a bridge that we made. Like, what, what is happening? Can you imagine for the priest what that first step must have been like? I wouldn't want to be a priest, or if I was, I'd want to be one in the back, not in the front. Okay? It makes me think of Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, right? That famous scene where he's going through all the clues, trying to find you know, the Holy Grail, and there's this big chasm he's got across, and it says something about taking a step of faith. And so it's just like, well, okay. And eventually he just takes a step off, and then as soon as he takes a step off, a bridge catches him, and then the path's revealed. Right? So I kind of think of, think of that, because that very moment when the priests are going, the, the storm or the river is raging, it's huge, but before their feet can touch the ground, the water goes away. And it says over and over how they passed on dry ground. And this miracle should be familiar to them, because it, it, it happens exactly how it did in the Red Sea. The, the word where it shall stand up in a heap, it repeats that in the end of 13, and it says heap again in 16. That's the same word that's used to describe the wall of water in the Red Sea and how God lets them pass. And then it references it again in case you missed it at the end of chapter 4 where it says, you know, God did this just in 4.23, so you shall know the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up for us until we passed over. God does the same thing. And so how should Israel act in the midst of this? In the midst of the worst circumstances they can imagine, right? This is the worst time they could think of to cross. As they were waiting there three days, because they were just camped there for several days waiting, they were probably thinking, well, maybe we're just going to camp out here until this gets down a little bit. Maybe we're going to camp out till we build some good boats, or we're going to build a bridge, or we're going to find a better path. But no, God doesn't wait till things get better. It's in the midst of the worst possible time to cross the river that they can think of, that's when God has them go. Because they just need to keep their eyes on God. It's far too easy for us to get distracted. There are circumstances that come and that hit us, that shake us, that shake us off our feet, that make us want to take our eyes off of God. You know, I also, I, I hate heights. Okay, I think I've talked about this before. I, I don't like them at all. It's one of two fears scientists tell you you're born with is heights and loud noises. So I think that's God telling me it's okay to be afraid of heights. Okay, I don't know. I don't have scripture back up for that, but I'm just going to, personally, that's what I tell myself. Okay, I don't even like stepping up on a ladder because it's a little too high off the ground for me. Right? But what do you always tell somebody? Okay, if they're, if they're high up or if they're on a roof or if they're going across a zip line or something, oh, just, just don't look down. Just don't look down. That's what people tell me. When, oh, I know it's high. Just, just don't look down. You'll be fine. Like, oh, okay, you know, that, that's probably true, um, but that's really unhelpful advice, okay? Because what do you, when, when you're up high and you're scared of heights, all you want to do is look down. What do you mean don't look down? That's where the danger is. Like, I, it's not going to go away. I know how high I am. I don't like this, right? You want me to just ignore all this danger around and just pretend it'll all be fine. No, I'm not going to do that. All, all I'm going to do is look down. Okay, that's all I can, I try not to, but I'm just going to look down because it's all I'm going to think about. Okay, but just like that, okay, walking on earth, all we want to do is look down. All we want to do is take our eyes off of Jesus. All we want to do is there are things that come in dangers and circumstances and busyness and you fill in the rest, but there's things that come that want us to take our eyes off of God and off of Jesus. But like Peter who, who walked on the water, we take our eyes off of God and look at, our, look at the waves and look at the circumstances. But we need to do is we need to keep our eyes on God, to follow where He is going, where He is leading, because we haven't gone this way before. 
That's what he, he repeats and, and says that to the people. You need to follow the ark because you haven't been here. I will show you the way. And so that's our goal is to keep our eyes on God. But how can we do that? You know, so how do we keep our eyes on Jesus in the midst of a busy world, in the midst of difficult circumstances, in the midst of, of a trying world? Is Point number two is that we need to make physical reminders of God's grace is we need to make physical reminders of God's grace. This is an interesting story, and I did both of these chapters together. The story is really repeated twice. If you notice, right, in 3 it talks about them crossing the river, and in 4 it has this break, but then it goes and talks about them crossing the river again. But there's this section on a memorial in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 4 that kind of breaks it up. And they're commanded to take 12 men, right? So it says this a number of times. So take 12 men, verse number 2, from the people and from each tribe, take a single man. And so why would they do this? Well, these men are representing their tribe, right? They're, they're representing the people, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe of Levi. And really, because it's all 12, anytime it takes somebody to represent the whole 12 tribes, it's not just to represent their tribes, but to represent the whole people of God. And so they do this, and in verse 3 it says, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodged tonight. So in the place where the river was raging, right, in the middle of it, probably the deepest point, go down there and get some big rocks, where it says to, to throw them up on your shoulders at one point. So these aren't supposed to be just little pebbles, okay? Get big old rocks and bring them. And they're supposed to bring these out of the river and to set up what is referred to as a memorial at the end of verse 7. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And verse 6 describes why they do this. One of the reasons to do this is that it will be a sign among you. So when your children ask in times to come in future, in later days, when your kids come and look at this, they'll say, hey, what do these stones mean? This is kind of funky, Dad. Why are these stones all set up this way? Why is this? And then you can say and you can tell them the story of what God did here. You can tell the story of what God did and how He showed up. And Israel is often commanded to do things like this. There are so many times and so many places that they are commanded to make memorials or they are commanded to do things to teach their children so that everyone can remember. They're commanded to do this through their feasts, the festivals, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of those feasts, if you go back and you look through Deuteronomy and Numbers and Leviticus and Exodus, every single one of those is to remind them of something, specifically to remind them of a way that God showed up and a way that He did something miraculous and a way in His grace that He was gracious to them. And why do they do this? Well, I don't think it's just for teaching future generations. That's definitely part of it. That's definitely a significant amount because it repeats a number of times to when your children ask these so you can tell them the story. But it's, it's also that they need to create reminders because people are forgetful. We are so forgetful. Israel especially is forgetful. It's really easy to make fun of them too for how forgetful they are because we can read through a whole generation's story in an afternoon if you're feeling really good and you got time to sit down and read it. Right? So you can read through somebody's whole life story and experience, and then you can laugh at that. How could you forget that? Well, I mean, you read it 10 minutes ago. For them, that was 30 years ago. Okay? Things fade after the years. Right? But this generation, okay, they've already seen God work incredible miracles. It's not been that long 
since God did miraculous things. He showed up in the desert. They've been eating manna from heaven every day for 40 years. That's, that's a pretty big miracle. I don't know if I would forget that. Okay, they've already they've seen, some of them have passed on, some of them are still alive, that have seen God pass part the Red Sea. They knew that God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. God worked nine miraculous, incredible plagues against the people of Egypt. They wouldn't forget, but it didn't take them long to forget all that when they were wandering in the desert, did it? They wondered, well, Moses, why'd you bring us out here? Now we're just going to die. We're going to starve to death. Now we don't have any water. What are we going to do? When pressure comes, that's when we always tend to forget what God has done for us. When the desert of our own life comes, when a new circumstance, when a new challenge pops up, that's when we forget the 30 miracles God's already worked in our life that we've already seen, isn't it? And let me ask you this. You don't have to raise your hand, but I want you to think and hold in your mind a moment where God showed up in your life and did something miraculous. Okay, think of a time when you, maybe it was healing, maybe it was somebody you were been praying for their salvation, you prayed for years and then the day finally came where they accepted Jesus into their life. Maybe there was a time where your bills got paid, you weren't sure how you were going to make ends meet, and then God showed up. Think of one of those moments that you desperately needed God to show up, and He did. Okay, how did it feel when that happened? Right, what was the, the joy and the overwhelming? You probably you wanted to email it out and share it on Sunday and call people and tell them, you can't believe what God just did, how He just worked this and what just happened. Man, this is amazing. And the moment you probably think, I'll never forget this. Like you're, you're on the height of the mountaintop. Okay, but that feeling didn't last that long, did it? And maybe it lasted uh, throughout the day. Maybe it lasted you a week. But the time the next bill came up, the time the next sickness came, Time you, the next challenge came, you weren't sure how, what you were going to do. You start to doubt if God really would show up again. You start to wonder if He really would do what, what He said He did before. Well, yeah, He worked that miracle once, but I don't know if He can do it twice. We forget quickly. We forget small things all the time, right? We forget what I had for breakfast yesterday. If I ate breakfast, I can't remember. Okay, we forget what we did last week. We forget what we were, had planned for the rest of the day. We forget small things, but we forget big things like what God has done too. And it fades and it feels like a distant memory. This is why God wants Joshua and all the people to make physical reminders so that when they see it, it catches their eye. So it tricks their brain. It makes them think, wait, what is this? It's kind of like a historical marker that you see kind of all throughout town when you're traveling. I love those. Anytime I'm seen or I'm in a new city or just traveling around, I, I have to stop and read every one because, well, somebody put this up here. Why? What happened? What was significant? Sometimes it's real significant. Sometimes I go, okay, I don't know why they want me to remember that, but all right. Right? But that, that's a small level kind of the kind of thing that God is asking Israel to do. But He's not asking them to just think about human history, but to remember God's history to remember what He has done. He wants big reminders for them to be so large and so significant that when they come back with their kids, people can't help but ask, hey, what is that? That's weird. Why is this here? I imagine this memorial, it makes me think of Stonehenge, right, over in Europe, where there's big piles of rocks and now they're kind of funky set up. Right? It took a, there was a many decades or years that scientists, people were wondering, man, what is this, what is this here for? Why are these rocks here? What is this? And they debated and had to, you know, went back and forth and why this is or isn't here. 
that's the kind of thing I want, think God wants us to do, to make something like that so that we don't forget, so that we don't forget what God has done. And I think Joshua took this so seriously that I think he actually built two memorials. If you notice in kind of 8 and 9, it describes, and 8 says, well, they carried these rocks over to the place where they lodged and they laid them down there. So that's what God told them to do. When you get to Gilgal, which happens later at the end of chapter 20, build the memorial there. But in 9, it describes, and Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the very place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they're still there to this day. Now, that's just my opinion. Some people will disagree with me and think they just put them there and then they moved them later. But I think they made two of them. I think that makes a little more sense looking at it. And part of it is because I think that, one, Joshua is just going overboard in obedience. But can you imagine this memorial that's in the middle of the river so you probably can't see it all the time? There's probably only times of the year when the river gets low that then these big rocks pop up. That would really catch your eye. Why are these rocks just in the middle of the river? What is that about? It looks like somebody put them there. You say, well, let me tell you about the time that God helped us cross the Jordan. In the very, those rocks are in the very spot where the priest stood, where the ark, where God was in front of us, and He was gracious to us. And we all need reminders, don't we? We all do. I, I have to put things in my phone to remind me to do stuff, especially if it's late at night and I'm trying to fall asleep and Bree tells me, hey, remember tomorrow you need to do blank. Okay, if I don't write it down or put it in my phone so it pops up, the next day to tell me, hey, Bree told you to do this, I'm going to forget. Okay, it just, it, it won't happen. If I don't write it down, my brain is not going to hold it there. But these stones are meant to be that kind of physical reminder. And 1121, where it describes in chapter 4, where in times to come, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, it makes me think of there's going to be days to come when Israel needs this reminder. There's going to be days they need to remember that God showed up. Just like there's going to be days in our lives, there's going to be days to come that are going to be difficult. There's going to be days to come that are hard, and there are going to be days to come when your eyes, when your head is swimming with grief and your eyes are filled with tears, and you need to be reminded of God's grace. And you need to be reminded that you serve a miraculous, great God who can do wonderful things. But part of the danger with reminders is that they can become stale to us, right? When you first see something or you first put it up, it was probably awesome, and you wonder, oh, why were these rocks here? That's amazing. The second time, maybe a little bit more. If, they came, if you live by these rocks and saw them every day, eventually it just fades into the background, and you don't remember anymore. Now it's just a cool place as a kid to climb on, right? As I imagine. But the problem isn't with the reminders, okay? The problem isn't that Israel had all these physical reminders and these rituals, and the rituals were bad and these reminders were bad. No, the problem is with our hearts, you can have all the reminders in front of you. I can put a thousand things in my phone to tell me when I need to do something, but if I don't actually desire to do it, it's just not going to get done, no matter how many times I remind myself of it. But our hearts are hard, and we need constant reminders in our life of what God has done. Give an example of how this happens with the cross. Right, the cross is a very common Christian symbol. Okay, it's probably the most common Christian symbol that we have. It's probably If we look around the room, we could see a number of crosses. Okay, we could count them. Many of us probably have some crosses on our Bible, probably have some jewelry that's got crosses on it. Okay, we got cross on our church logo. We got crosses everywhere. But so often we can still just forget because we see it so often what the cross actually is. Okay, the cross is an electric chair. The cross is a firing squad. The cross is an, ex- an, an element of execution. It's a method that they use to murder people. 
to, to kill them. And for us, it's an instrument of execution and death. We have it. It's supposed to remind us of the gospel, to remind us that our God died on that cross, that He shed His blood on that cross to die as a sacrifice to pay our penalty for sin so that we can receive salvation. He died there to bring us new life. The cross, it's a reminder of the gospel. It's a reminder of Jesus. It's a reminder of what He has done. And we need these reminders, right? We need to have things in our life that point us to the cross, that point us to Jesus, that point us to the gospel. So don't hear me say, that. please do not hear me saying that crosses are bad and we need less of them. That is not what I'm saying. If anything, we probably need more of them. Okay, but the problem isn't with the symbol or the cross or having crosses around or on a jewelry in our Bibles. The problem is with us, that we can see it all the time, that we forget, that we forget the centrality and the beauty of the cross, that we think we have it all down and we want to get to something else. Okay, I'm a nerd, so I love theology. If you want to talk about obscure, dead German theologians or random points of theology that nobody else really cares about because ultimately, really, it doesn't matter and the only people who care about this small thing are people who are long dead or in their ivory academic towers. Okay, I love that. I'm here for that. You want to do that? Let's, let's go. But nothing is more important than remembering the gospel. Nothing is more important than remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus did that frames everything else we do. And not just all of our theology, but it should frame the rest of our lives. We need to remember what God has accomplished. And this is part of why communion is such an important Christian practice. That's why many traditions and churches will practice it every single time they gather because it's, a, it's meant to be a physical reminder of the gospel. It reminds our bodies and our tongues, because we actually have to taste it and interact with it physically, of what Jesus did, of what He accomplished, of what it symbolizes, what it means. So we take time as we physically do it, and as we eat it, and as we chew, and as we drink, of what God did. It helps us reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus and the fact that He is going to come again. And just like Israel made this memorial of these rocks and we celebrate memorials like communion and other things, we need lots of reminders of what God has done. And so point number three, if you haven't guessed, it's very similar. It's just that we need to make our own memorial. This is your, your application. It's really, I encourage you, make your own memorial this week. I think a practical way to do this is to actually make just physical reminders for you of what God has done for you. There's a number of different ways we can do this, right? Because it's individual or it's, it's family. There, there's a number of different ways we can do this. Some ways that I've done this, there's things in my office that I have on my desk or hanging up around that are reminders of God's faithfulness to me. They're gifts for, that I, when I see them, I, I think of specific things or I think of this time in my life and how God showed up. And man, I didn't know how we'd pay the bills then, but we did. And only God could have done that. One of Brianna's friends, I, I love this, they um, made a memorial. They made a timeline around their apartment hanging up. And they would write on it physically and write down, hey, here's when God did this. Hey, here's this prayer that I was praying that someone would get healed, and they actually did, and here's the date, and I've got it written down. So they could walk around and see this physical reminder all the time of all the places over and over how God had shown up in their lives. You know, maybe you just make a list, like I've got another list on my computer and my favorite organizing program that just lists times like this that God has shown up and miracles that He's done in my life and things I didn't think He could do. 
Now, I'm not going to tell you how to do this, and many of you probably have already done this in some form or fashion. Keep doing it. I want to encourage you to continue doing that. If you're married you, or you have kids, you can talk with your spouse and sit down together. Come up with a list. Talk about something. Or think of, think of one time together and just set aside maybe 15 minutes to just sit and talk and talk about all the times in your life that God has shown up in your family and your marriage over and over again. And just discuss them. Or do it as a family or do it with a group of friends. Gather somebody together. Just call them if you can't. And just talk about, man, how has God shown up? Let's just spend 10 minutes and talk about all the miraculous times God's shown up in our life. Let's just look back and remember. Let's keep our eyes on God. It could be something fancy and elaborate like that timeline. It could be something small like a sticky note in the mirror. I don't know what it is for you, but I just encourage you to do something physical. Do something physical. Don't just put it in your brain and think, yeah, this week I'll try and remember more. Well, you'll probably forget like I would. And put it somewhere that you'll see. And whenever you see that, or if you already have some, be intentional this week about stopping and remembering and reflecting on God's grace and what He's done in your life. If you're unsaved, if you don't know Jesus, you don't need reminders of the gospel. You just need the gospel. You just need Jesus. And His arms are open and He is waiting for you to come. I'd love to talk to you more about that if you're interested. I'm going to close with, with the story just about keeping our, our eyes on Jesus and the importance of it. So the football team, my town growing up in Lexington, was pretty bad. Um, and by pretty bad, I mean they were horrible. So it was, <laughs> at one year, at one point, they were about 4-27 and 27 over three years. Okay, winless the year before. I think they scored like one touchdown all year. They were so bad and had been so bad for so long that people actually came to the games just to watch the marching band perform at halftime. And then when the band was done, everybody would leave and the stadium would clear out because, well, we're terrible, we're going to lose, why would I stick around anyway? But there was one game, okay, the, the next year after going winless, we were neck and neck with a rival school, okay, and things are close. So people have actually stayed after the band performed, everybody's getting excited, and the clock's starting to run out in the fourth, and we're only behind by about five points, right? So we just need a touchdown and we can, we can do this. And all of a sudden, our running back breaks free. Right? He, just, he dodges him, he gets through the line somehow, and he's just taken off, and he's on the 40, and almost nobody's around him. They're kind of chasing him, but it's, you know, they're chasing him, and they're not going to get him. So there's the 40, and he's at the 30, and all of a sudden, as he's running, the stands are just erupting, and everyone's excited because, yes, finally, we're going to get a win. We've needed this forever. And at, by the 20-yard line, he's still got a really good distance, but he starts to look back behind him. Right? You see these guys kind of do this, and they start to look back, see if anyone's chasing him. He does it once, but then he does it again. And he's running as hard as he can. So he's swinging his arms like this, and then he keeps looking back. And he's swinging, and then he keeps looking back. And then it happens where he's got his arm up here holding the football, and he turns to look if anyone's chasing him, and he knocks the football out of his own hands. And it just bounces perfectly, and the other team picks it up and holds it, and then they go on and score, and we lose. And we lost all because this one guy just couldn't keep his eyes just straight. Okay, they were not going to catch him. There's nowhere on earth. Unless he stopped running, they couldn't catch him. But he decided to just keep looking around and take his eyes off of the goal and lost the ball. No one took it from him. He, he lost it himself, all because of where he was looking. And don't do that. Okay, don't do that just in football. <laughs> but don't do that in life. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on Jesus. Keep our eyes on the cross. Keep our eyes on the gospel. No matter what is going around 
around you. No matter what the footsteps you hear or what your circumstances are or what the doctor says, no matter what you're swarmed with, no matter how overwhelmed you are, keep your eyes on Jesus. Because He's already won. He's already... There's nothing that could happen in this world that would shock Him. There's nothing that could happen that could take Him, take you out of His hands. He's already won and He will do it again and He loves you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. So I'm going to pray for us. Now let's bow your heads. Lord, I just thank You that You are a miraculous God. Lord, I, I just ask that You would aid us. Lord, we, we need to keep our eyes on You. We want to keep our eyes on You, but we are so forgetful. We get distracted and we start looking other places and doing other things. And Lord, we can't even keep our eyes on You unless You come with Your Holy Spirit and help us and aid us. Lord, would You do that this week? Would You allow us to have our eyes on You? Would You remind us of all the things that You have done in our lives? Would You remind us of the Gospel of how You died and gave Your life for us? Lord, don't let us take our eyes off of You off of the God who loves us, off of the God who calls us His beloved children, off of the God who fights all of our battles for us. And all we need to do is keep our eyes on You. We pray this in Your holy and precious name. Amen. We're gonna, I invite you to stand. We're going to continue to worship in song, our song we've been singing this month. We're just going to sing about how our God really does fight for us. We just need to keep our eyes on Him. Let's stand and worship together.